And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's tried that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. Today is Friday. Thank you for that predictable introduction, Greta. We are going to be doing yet another edition of Climate Change Roundtable. And we are uh, going to be talking about children. No, not Greta, because she doesn't do any actual work. We're talking about the kids that are doing the dirty work of green energy. You know, uh, one of the things that's happened in the United States uh, since around uh, since President Nixon uh, formed the Environmental Protection Administration uh, back around 1970 is that we've exported a lot of our jobs and manufacturing overseas, and overseas. They don't care as much about things like child labor or the environment. And so we end up with uh, green energy having a very, very dark backside. With me today is our usual panel of experts. We have Linnea Lucan and Sterling Burnett. And Sterling is going to be taking the lead on many of the uh, things that we're going to discuss this day because he presented at our ICCC 15 just last month a very interesting presentation on child labor and exploitation when it comes to green energy. Thank you both for being here today. Looking forward to it. Always good. Sterling, I think you should um, introduce your background on this because you aren't just interested in this topic randomly, but your education is actually in. Yeah, well, you know, my my, uh, PhD is in applied philosophy. Uh, I specialize in environmental ethics and um, I have always, uh, throughout my career at Heartland and before that at the National Center for Policy Analysis, looked at, um, I always think about ethics first, right and wrong, what's moral. And um, the thing, one of the things that has troubled me, uh, you know, a lot of my friends think ethics is, well, they do a cost-benefit analysis and that determines what's right or wrong. I don't think so. Sometimes something can be efficient and wrong. <laughs> and, uh, but what troubles me with with green energy is that it's efficient and immoral it's it's you know even if the benefits of green energy were apparent even if it could compete in the marketplace without huge subsidies without government mandates and support um it's still the way it is produced the the mining where it takes place the labor that goes into it for the minerals that are critical to all these energy technologies, we could be producing a lot of them here. We aren't. We think too much of our people, but we think it's okay to offshore our pollution and labor, uh, slave labor, environment, uh, child labor to other countries to satisfy our green dreams. And I think that's immoral and wrong. All righty. So we agree that it's immoral because we've all seen the pictures. We've seen the videos. We've seen the stories of exploitation of sickness and 
death as even associated with children and young adults doing all of this dirty work in wouldn't what what wouldn't even be classified as a mine here in the United States, but more like just a dirty pit. And so, Sterling, you've been following all this. Here we've got some videos of some of the actual mines that are going on and what people are doing. I mean, this is just this is the kind of labor that you would expect to see in prison camps. Look at that kid right there. That's not an adult. That's not someone who uh, who uh, made a conscious choice. Uh, you know, a, a, a fully informed choice that, that, to go to these mines. And uh, we think it's okay. You know, it's like, oh, well, we're, we're going to, we've got some kind of memorandum of understanding that we're going to reduce child labor. Uh, yeah. And then Biden goes to, uh, to Congo and says, hey, we want more stuff from you and not China. Well, yeah. we're going to produce more of this. This is a cobalt mine in the Congo. And cobalt is one of the rare earths that is being used to uh, make magnets and things like that for electric motors for, you know, Teslas and Fiskers and other types of electric cars and electric things, also for wind turbines. So, you know, is this really what we want out of green energy? I mean, do we really want to be exploiting people so that we can have virtue signaling in the Western worlds? Well, I don't I mean, know. Can we, can we still, you know, is there any sense in which we can call it clean energy when you see this? You know, um, I think... You have to understand, we're going to need cobalt and and, uh, and lithium and all sorts of uh, ethereum and rare earths and, and minerals and copper. We're going to need those for a lot of technologies. Every energy technology uses some of these m materials. But I think uh, we have lined up a couple of graphics that show that green energy technologies, by far and away, use more of these materials than any other energy source. So I think it's, uh, I think it's three and four. Yeah, so. Wow, look at that. The conventional car versus the electric car and how much difference there is. Yep, I think we lost Sterling for a second there. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he's frozen with a grimace on his face. I, Andy, I think you, it must be the feds. They just don't want Sterling talking about this. Um, if you go back to the previous slide, Andy, and talk about the exact minerals that are required for these kinds of technologies, I think that, I mean, of course, as Sterling said, all technology requires these materials, but the quantities that are used here are... Um, way above and beyond for green technology as opposed to, you know, your cell phone and, and that kind of thing. It looks right. like Sterling's back. Sterling yeah. is back now. I, I got no idea why Fridays, I, I think it, it's a cabal, uh, you know, arrayed against me that Fridays, my, uh, <laughs> my Wi-Fi goes down. Um, so I, I don't know if I, anyone heard what I said about the, the, the graphic about electric vehicles versus cars. Did we get that or not? Yes, we did. We're here, and we did. I don't know what you, heard, what you didn't. I didn't. I don't think we heard anything from you, Sterling. Well, okay, so you well, well, here it is. Look, you just look at it for a second. They're almost not on the same scale. The minerals needed for a conventional car versus the minerals needed for an electric car. Every electric car uses a lot of child and slave labor. You could produce all the minerals for a conventional car in, in from the Congo, from China, all of them without child and slave labor for a conventional car. But to get that, uh, 
because it's it, it's twenty to forty percent of the of the labor in Congo is is child labor. Well, we cover that easily for conventional cars without that. Not for your electric vehicles. And then if you go to the electric, um, look at that. So offshore wind, the biggest. What's the next? Onshore wind. What's the next? Solar PV. So it's like, hold it. We are mandating through our policies in the West. We are we are guaranteeing that slaves will be will continue to be enslaved, that children will continue to work in these horrific conditions, die young, uh, to satisfy our quest. They're not building these wind turbines in these countries. Congo doesn't have vast solar arrays. They're doing it for us because we do. I would point out, Sterling, that the bottom three, nuclear, coal, and natural gas, which make up the bulk of energy in the United States that is produced and used, is highly regulated by uh, agencies like OSHA, where there is no child slave labor, and they have regulations about coal mining and so forth and so on. But the the solar, the wind, those are all manufactured overseas for the most part, where there is none of this regulation, none of this oversight. And and if you look at that, a lot of these minerals, uh, uh, I don't see the breakdown, and that might be my fault. I know this is my slide. Um, but uh, some of the stuff on there is like copper. Well, copper is not being produced using slave labor um, uh, and many things. But your cobalt, uh, your lithium, a lot of the stuff is not, even when it's not produced using slave labor, you got to understand where are these minerals refined? In other words, where's the finished product come from? Both the finished mineral and most often, the finished uh, retail product, which is the actual wind turbine, the actual battery, the actual solar panel, China. And China uses slave labor. If you don't, you know, if you like uh, slave labor, you got to love China because uh, they've got whole minorities that they use. Uyghurs, uh, the Falun Gong uh, sect. You know, you don't have to think. Uh, I don't know enough about Falun Gong to know if I feel, have any feelings about their religious practices or the Uyghurs to know if I feel anything about their religious practice. What I do know is they ought to be able to worship as they wish and they shouldn't be slaves. And yet um, that's how China's using them uh, in these re-education camps. Um, I can talk about this all day. We could talk about this all day. I think the most powerful thing to show this is that right there. Look at that. There's uh there's some of those child laborers. Look at that. Look at the look at the, the ages of these kids that are working the mines. Just linger on it for a second. There's there's another one. No, 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 no. that was okay. Go ahead. One of and one of the points that we should probably make, Sterling, is that, you know, when it comes to rare earth mining, um, people have pointed this out a lot. It's good to reiterate. It's not that these materials are rare in the crust in total. You know, they are, they are, there is a lot of cobalt, there is a lot of lithium, but it's spread out relatively thin. You don't get big veins of it the way that you get for what? copper or other materials for a lot of these. And a lot of these, rare earths you need to move a ton of dirt 
way more dirt than you need to move for coal mining or something in order to get economic quantities out of the um, the stone that it's coming out of. Okay, wait, wait for a second, Linnea. I want to go back. Could you go back to the slides, please? I just want people to see. This is a woman who goes and labors, and what she's doing is she's putting her child in a box to leave it there while she goes down and works in the mines. That's the crib right there where all the dust is, where all the rocks are. Uh, boy, that's, that looks safe to me. Go back, go back another slide, please. I mean, I just want to focus on the pictures for a bit. I want you to think about that. Do you want your kid, your grandkid, your nieces or nephews doing that labor? Would you, would you find that at, at all acceptable? Would you sue? Would you, you know, protest? Uh, where are those protests in the streets? Go back another slide, please. God, look at that. What are they? Five? Eight? Ten? I don't know. Doing hard labor. You th you think it was the chain gang, a chain gang in Louisiana or something? Yeah. You know, Greta talks about stealing her childhood. The climate change has yeah. stolen her childhood. Well, look at this, Greta. Yeah. How dare you? As she trains, as she trains in yachts around the world. Uh, uh, her childhood is stolen. No, their childhood is stolen. Their adult, they may not reach adulthood. Uh, you know, look, I, I think that we've got a news story about a, a mine. Um, yep. Uh, I th we ran that video earlier, Andy, if you can bring up that news story that we ran, it was, uh, it was a clip showing the mining and a couple of anchors. No, that wasn't it. <laughs> I think that's it. Yes, here yeah. it is. That's not it. You had that's it. Not, it was... You had it. Yeah. World's I biggest tech companies are being sued over child mining debts in the Democratic Republic of Congo. A human rights group filed a lawsuit on behalf of 14 Congolese families. They accuse companies like Apple, Google, Dell, Microsoft, and Tesla from benefiting from child labor to mine cobalt. That mineral is key to powering batteries used in our cell phones, computers, and our electric cars. CBS News launched an investigation into child cobalt miners in Congo last year. And foreign correspondent Deborah Pata exposed the horrific conditions. And now she's taking a closer look at this unprecedented lawsuit. Kids are still doing the unthinkable in the DRC. Backbreaking work even for adults. But a world away in Washington, there's new hope for the children in a lawsuit filed against major American tech companies who use the cobalt. Yeah, so we, 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 some people are filing a lawsuit here, but the point is, it's not as if the Biden administration doesn't know this. It's not as if Democrats in Congress don't know this. It's not a, as if all the people pushing for offshore wind, the largest, uh, the largest uh, demand for the uh, for the um, magnets that that help drive wind turbines that the cobalt's needed. They don't. They know this, and yet Biden is pushing thirty thousand wind turbines off the East Coast alone. Uh, and are they allowing mining here? No. Every mine that they try and open, the Biden administration withdraws the land from use. Um, and you say, oh, well, we'll go to other sources besides Congo. No, in fact, you know, to get away from China, he just signed agreements to uh, to get more materials from Africa, including Congo.
We don't want to rely on China, so let's get more from Congo. Well, that's, <laughs> you know, it, it's hard to be disgusted enough by this. And uh, most Americans blindly say, oh, well, we're saving the environment or, or these technologies are good for the world. And they are blind to the harms. Um, and it's not just Congo. You know, I think Andy's got some a few uh, pictures from China as well. China's harder, right? Uh, they've got a pretty strong government there. It's harder to get images sn uh, sneaked out of, uh, of uh, well, but here's, here's a great picture. I don't know how they got that one out. Uh, I'm, I'm sure China is not happy that someone was able to get it out. But uh, uh, here's here's a picture of a, a you know, uh, there's a, a good old re-education camp. Let's put together motherboards. Uh, <laughs> that's Falun Gong, right? Uh, there's there's another one of those uh, healthy uh, mine workers in China. It's, you know, like I said, it's not just Africa. Well, and Sterling, it's pretty awful when you see, you know, um, politicians and green activists, you know, carrying water for the Chinese government over this, because yeah. I have seen tons of arguments from their side saying, well, you know, if you don't like it, then you just shouldn't have electronics, period. Or if you don't like it, you know, well, the Chinese say that they're compensating these people. So technically they're not slaves. You know, <laughs> it's, I, I've heard this over and over again, mm -hmm. and I would love to know, you know, Where's that argument for historic slavery in the U.S. or something, mm -hmm. you know, or or the um, internment of the Japanese during World War II? I yeah. mean, they have they've they're not going to bring up an excuse for that because it wasn't something that they benefited from. But as soon as it's something that is, you know, related to the green money that's floating around, um, all their funding and grants, all of a sudden they just think that it's totally fine. It's just part of doing business to them. No, that's that's exactly right. You know, these these people are benefiting from this or they're pushing it. You know, they're either pushing the technologies or benefiting from the technologies or both. And so yeah. they can't have these things cut off. You talk about uh, you, you compared it. Think about prisons in the U.S. today. They have largely I don't think I, I could be wrong. I don't think, you know, you see the old uh, chain gangs anymore where guys have, uh, uh, you know, weights around their ankles and they're out busting rocks and, and, and cutting, cutting roads. Uh, well, maybe not, I, maybe not that, but I just yeah, came well, here from yeah, South Louisiana and they definitely do have uh, kind of chain gangs, but not hard labor, like picking up trash on the road, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe. And they get, and even while they're in prison, they get a little, not just, to, they don't just get room and board and they get health care. Uh, they get uh, a, a small stipend so that when they come out of prison, uh, they walk away with a little money. Uh, first off, the Falun Gong and the Uyghurs, a lot of them aren't walking out of prison. They're there. They'll be reeducated for life until a bullet gets put in the back of their brain. Um, and uh, I, I guess they are getting room and bored <laughs> while they're imprisoned. Uh, the question is, can they, could they choose not to, you know, in the end, you can walk away from work here in the U S unless you committed a crime and you're in prison, yeah. you can choose a different job. I don't think these people have much choice. 
You know, given that California is the leading green state with all of the the highest saturation of green technology and, um, you know, electric car mandates and all that sort of thing, maybe, just maybe, we can get California to uh, provide um, a bill to provide retribution to the slaves in China. I mean, they've already done it for the non-existent slaves in California, right? Yeah, reparations, yeah. Now, you know, the um, the appalling nature of it is, so the Biden administration knows this. We've actually passed a law uh, that's supposed to uh, ban products use, using slave labor uh, from uh, the Uyghurs in China. Um, and they have, I think they blocked a thousand solar panels. A thousand solar panels were blocked from China because it ran afoul of this law. Uh, how many tens of thousands more have come in? How, how good is our tracking in China of this? You know, do, do we have a lot of spies on the ground there saying, yep, that's slave labor. That's not. Uh, that one's okay. That one's not. I, I suspect not. Um, and uh, we have, the, the, you know, we have the minerals here. And Biden, the Biden administration, the Biden administration says, um, he came in saying, we're going to do more mining here. We're going to produce these minerals here. Uh, and then mine after mine after mine, he has blocked or withdrawn. Just, just recently in Minnesota, he withdraw an area where they were going to do some mining for minerals necessary for his green energy push. Um, the same in the House Resources Commission, you know, committee had a, a hearing on this. They've done it in, in, in Alaska. They've done it all over. Every place you want to open a new mine, Biden says no. Hmm. And in the uh, laughingly called um, Inflation Reduction Act, Biden touted, he went out on the road and said, by God, I'm, I'm the labor president. I, this is for American workers. There are provisions, and there are provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act that say uh, the green, uh, the EV technologies and the charging stations must be built using minerals and produced, constructed here in the U.S. And huh. then about three or four weeks ago, it turns out physics and reality hit the Biden administration in the face. And they found out that if you want all these electric vehicle chargers that you promised in your, you know, in your speeches, we can't get them from here. And so he immediately waived those provisions. He touted them. He says, I'm giving labor jobs. And then he waves the provisions that would give labor those jobs that would get the stuff done here. And of course, now um, Joe Manchin is threatening to sue the administration over that precise uh, provision that, that he only signed on because Biden said, oh, we're going to build this here and it's in the law. And now he wants to just get rid of the, you know, when it's, when the law is inconvenient to his green energy uh, utopia, uh, we're just going to waive those provisions and thus getting back to sort of the topic, increase and continue slave labor in China and the Congo and elsewhere. So uh, you can't, I, I remember a time when I was young, when Democrats were constantly on the air railing for human rights and saying we shouldn't put business above, among human rights. We shouldn't do business with countries that were violating human rights. Here, with eyes open, 
they're pushing for more business with countries that abuse human rights. You know, what happened to that party? Yeah, you know, I remember we we used to have things like um, you know concerts for Bangladesh and so forth, and all of this concern over you know the treatment of humans worldwide. That seems to have evaporated completely with the advent of green energy. It's a devil may care, full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes kind of an attitude uh, associated with green energy. That green energy is far more important now than human rights. That seems to be the mantra of the left. And it basically points out what I've said again and again. Environmentalism basically ruins almost everything it touches because these folks are not mathematically or science inclined. It's all about how they feel. And the feeling doesn't substitute for good engineering and, and good practice. It just doesn't. And that's why we end up with these messes. Well, and Anthony, too, where's their feeling for the people that are engaging in slave labor? You know, where if mm -hmm. it's if it is just based on feeling, because I, I have begun to suspect that the emotional appeals that the far extreme, you know, environmentalist side makes are just kind of cover for what they want to accomplish, that they don't really have these strong humanitarian or nature feelings when it comes to things that they uh want to achieve and get their own way with because where are their feelings for the whales um, that are being killed off the east coast right now right. where are their feelings for the mountaintops that china has sliced off to install solar you know where are their feelings for the child labor or the slave labor in china i mean i don't i don't think that they actually are all that uh empathetic i think that they oh, are yeah, so long they can leverage it to get their way, but they really don't care. Yeah, you know, I think you're spot on, Linnea. I think that's it. That it's yeah. it's all a cover for control and and you know their whole vision of the future, their utopian future, um, and these other things, dangerous annoyances that get in the way. They, look, many of these people are misanthropes. They just don't like most humans. That's why they can say that the ideal human population, like one environmental philosopher wrote, is 200 million people. How do we get there? That's why they can admire China, uh, despite the fact that it emits twice as much CO2 emissions than all the other industrial countries combined uh, at this stage. Uh, they can still say it's doing good, it's doing green. Why? Because it has strict population control policies. They like population control. Humans are the ultimate problem. They, I've seen them say it. They're the cancer on the earth. And mm -hmm. if a virus comes along and wipes them out, the earth will be better off for it. So um, they don't care, perhaps, because if if kids are dying, if slaves are dying, that's just fewer people. And, and they're okay with that. Um, but the thing is, they're supposed to care about the environment, right? Uh, some of those pictures from China that I had in there were, were showing atrocious environmental conditions. The, the, the waters are being polluted. The land is being polluted. And it's not just there, as, as, as Linnea mentioned. Okay, do you care about whales and dolphins? You used to. You used to. Uh, it, 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 a lot of focus has been on the North Atlantic right whale with these wind farms. But it's not just the right whale. Not just 10 dolphins have died. Or 12 dolphins have hundreds, you know, dozens, hundreds of dolphins are dying 
in the North Atlantic. I guess we, you know, I remember when environmentalists took to the streets to get dolphin safe tuna, uh, you know, made the law <laughs> of the land. Uh, what about dolphin safe wind turbines? I How about dolphin any, safe Teslas? <laughs> I, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't see any of that. Put a sticker on this side. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing how their principles go away when they find a bigger cause. And by the way, not coincidentally, I think the bigger cause requires ever bigger government. Of course. It's all about power and whatever gives them the most power. Right. Empire building to further the cause. That's all it is. And, you know, uh, you're absolutely right, Sterling. The whole the whole key to this thing is the fact that they just simply, they'll make a statement about what's important, you know, years ago, whether it's whales or it's dolphins, tuna cans, whatever. But as soon as they get that new cause, that one that they're, you know, captures the imagination and gets the, the press, they'll just run with that and forget about the rest of it. They have no scruples. They have no integrity. Well, you know, in the 70s, it was global cooling and the next ice age was coming and the response was bigger government, more government control. Uh, before global warming, uh, it was chemicals. Uh, some of you may not remember this, but I was working it when they were talking about uh, endocrine disruptors and chemicals. And the answer like was Gary. bigger bigger government control. Endangered yep. uh, species, bigger government. It doesn't matter the problem. It doesn't matter the cause of the problem. It doesn't matter the impact of the problem. The answer is... And as far as I can tell, always it will be for these folks, more government control. Because they really think they or uh, the bureaucratic elites who they support know how people ought to live in very detailed fashion. What, you know, what should your toilet look like and how much water should it hold? What should your dishwasher look like and how much water should it use? And how, how, Let's get those smart thermostats so we can control what you set it at, which is, by the way, what they're doing in Europe now. Everyone's said, oh, the smart thermostats, it'll save you money. Smart thermostats. Uh, Yeah. But the real reason they want smart thermostats is because then the government either owned or uh, uh, regulated utilities can control your use. That's what it's ultimately all about. I personally avoid any product that's got the word smart in it because I know I'm a smart person. I don't need to be told. Anyway, bottom line is the history that we've been getting into, you know, if you want to review the history of environmental predictions, this is a perfect, perfect thing to go through here. Uh, This is a fantastic summary of all of the 50 years of failed eco-apocalyptic predictions that, you know, are all supposedly solved by bigger government. And so let's run through, let's run through a few of those. I mean, they're just uh, dire famine forecast by 1975. Gosh, it's already too late. We're still here. No. Lack of time. You know, uh, new ice age by 21st century. Didn't happen. Didn't happen at all. Uh, oh, then there's our favorite, favorite doomsayer, Dr. Ehrlich. Outspoken ecologist telling us that, you know, we're going to have famine and population reductions and death and everything before the year 2000. Didn't happen. Made hundreds of predictions over the years. 
As far as I can determine, not a single one of them has come true. And yet he's still cited as an expert as recently as this year on 60 Minutes. He's like in his 90s. And and they're still going to him as an expert, despite the fact that he has never been right. He's he made, insists, he's made he insists that he's Chester never been wrong, which is the most amazing part. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd love to love. see a parody video of the McLaughlin group where they go through each one of these and that guy shout, wrong! Yeah, <laughs> McLaughlin's is wrong. The correct answer is... Yeah. So, you know, uh, look, you know the, it's just amazing. All of these environmental predictions that have been made, that have been covered in the media, you know, about the doom that's just around the corner, just on the horizon, just a few years down the road, if we don't act now, have all been proven wrong. And it's a pattern with the left and a pattern with the news media where they don't bother to check facts. They just say, doom is coming. We have to act now. It's that whole activist mentality that they've got. And it's, it's, it always comes out wrong. And I want to point out, by the way, that a lot of these elements that you're seeing here in this document are going to show up on a new feature that we have coming on What's Up With That. We're going to have an interactive timeline where you're going to be able to go through all of these things and see where the doom prediction was made and see the outcome. And we're going to have that feature up probably in about a week. So you might want to look at that. Uh, but at the same time, I want to go back to Sterling and say, Sterling, why do you think they keep repeating these same mistakes over and over and over again? You know, it's amazing. Hell, even a, a, a stopped clock is right twice a day. Er Ehrlich's never been right once. If you look at a stop clock and it's midnight or noon, you wouldn't say, well, it got that right, so there's no need to repair it. Uh, but with Ehrlich, he's never wrong, and there's no need to correct him or to find somebody else to talk to. And that's not just Ehrlich. You know, I wish it were just one uh, loon scientist, right? It's it's dozens of them, the, the whole Club of Rome. Uh, the first prediction of the uh, the decline in, in uh disappearance of oil came about 10 years after we first developed the first underground well. Um, uh, a few years ago, uh, I think Abel Windsor pointed out a great, great point. Who saved the whales? Well, Rockefeller. <laughs> when, <laughs> when he started producing kerosene, we weren't using whale oil. We didn't have to rely on whale oil anymore, right? Uh, so it's, uh, and now, and now his, his, uh, his, uh, progenitors, his his uh, uh, this generation of Rockefellers, the Rockefeller Fund, is once again is is contributing to the destruction of whales through the push of offshore wind. Uh, you asked me, Anthony, why they keep doing this, and honestly, I can't. I, I always say this: I can't get in people's heads. I don't know their other people's motivations, but we can make some educated guesses. And it seems to me the best educated guess is money and power. Either that or mental illness. I don't know which. Yeah, well, it, it may be a combination of, of the two. But um, they big green groups raise a lot of money on causes. That's they true. They used to raise it on saving the whale. Now they raise it on saving the earth from climate change, even at the expense of the whale, evidently. Uh, right. I mean, a lot of money hundreds of millions of dollars a year go to the top green groups. Yep. Now, government, bureaucrats, I, I never once, not once, have I seen 
a government bureaucrat go in to testify before Congress at budget time and say, you know what? My agency needs less funding this year. <laughs> we don't even need what we had last year. We need to start cutting funding. We don't want as much staff. We've solved the problem we were created to solve. And so let's just fold this baby. I've never seen that. Yeah, if it's that happened, C-SPAN would cut off the video feed. <laughs> yeah, every year they go in and asking for more as they take, as they claim they have more needs. Why? Because they've got mission creep. Every year they try and go into new things that they were never doing before and stop focusing on the old things. Uh, and so they need more staff, more layers of bureaucracy so they can rise up that bureaucracy and more money. And so... Um, psychologically, I can't get in their heads. All I can say is I don't think it's coincidence that green groups keep growing and raising money on causes that give them a lot of uh, power that, you know, they go and influence government and government keeps growing and demanding more power because, you know, look, I've been around 59 years now. Every one of those years, probably between five and 20,000 new regulations go on the books. You know, if you talk about pages, pages in the federal register, did I really need that kind of micromanagement? I mean, really, could I, would I not have survived 59 years if I hadn't had millions of pages added to the federal register to tell me uh, how to drive, what to drive, what uh, toilet to use, how much energy my dishwasher or washing machine used? Um, you know, how to build a, a garage, you know, what materials are, are allowed. I, I just don't believe it. I don't believe that was all necessary to make mine and everybody else's lives better. Yeah. You know, it's like the, it's like the tags that are on mattresses that you're not supposed to remove. You know, everybody just looks at that and goes, yeah, rip. <laughs> It's just a, it's a pointless exercise in futility for these regulations. You know, most people don't give a wit whatsoever about this tag or what it says. Have you seen electrical cords lately? Go to the go to the hardware store and buy a new electrical cord. There's three tags on it. You know, one of them says there's electricity in here. You may die. Watch out. Another one says this one conforms to regulations about pollution and chemicals. Then another one says there may be cancer causing materials in here. I mean, it's insane. Absolutely insane, the micro-regulation of this stuff. Now, speaking of insanity, for those of you that are out there in the cloud watching us talk about all of this, I want to point out that we have a feature called Super Chat. And this Super Chat feature allows you to ask a question. Now, of course, you can ask a regular question in comments as well. But the Super Chat feature allows you to send a little money our way, but at the same time, make an extended question or comment that we will put up prominently. So if you want to do that, look it up on your comments feed and try it out. So back to you guys. Uh, what's in the future for us? I mean, are we all going to be living in a, in a utopian future where our every aspect of our day is managed by some regulation where we have to report what we're doing? Well, uh, one, that would not be utopia. <laughs> You know, you will own nothing and be happy is, uh, you know, a cute slogan for something that would end up being horrific in the end. Own um, nothing, be you know, happy. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's almost 
too creepy for words and people try to rationalize it, right? The whole idea that, you know, we can have a um, totally planned communities, totally planned economy, totally planned environmental um, preservation or whatever they want, um, like the corridor project that the old Agenda 21 proposed and that they're still holding on to. The idea that, you know, human population needs to be restrained to a very few specific locations and the rest of it needs to be left back to wilderness. Um, and one of the things that we haven't mentioned yet that I would like to point out really quickly, kind of tangentially to overmanaging and ending up killing people because of it. Um, you know, if we ban fossil fuels, if we go all the way towards, you know, just wind and solar, nothing else, not only will we have blackouts and all of that, but also this whole leave it in the ground idea. How are we going to feed the people that are doing the mining, right? It's not like they're eating very well currently. So if you make it even harder to mass produce food, what's that going to do for us? It's you're creating an entire underclass of people in the third world and even in the second world who are not going to be able to live to the standards that we can in the first world. Now, we might see some starvation or some um, problems with food security in the first world if we continue to do things like banning fossil fuel derived fertilizers, right? We might see some of that, but we won't see nearly the effects of that that India will or that the Congo will or anywhere else that depends on, you know, food for their growing populations. And so it's comfortable for people like, you know, Bill Gates or John Kerry, as uh, Sterling and I wrote an op-ed recently on, or, um, you know, any of those other number of coastal elites, they're not going to have to suffer from these choices. And like Sterling pointed out, they didn't even think ahead to find out if we had enough materials to do what they want to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The idea That's that these people will manage everything is completely absurd. Right. Well, they've got it worked out. They they worked it out back in 1974 with Soylent Green. That's what it's going to be for the future. Oh, we're already there. Soylent Green is insects now. But remember, many states are passing laws allowing you to compost your loved one. I know I want my loved one in, the, in, in corn sprouting up. Uh, so in, in one real sense, soon Soylent Green may be people. Um, I want to I talk a little bit about the, the flip side of the green imperialism. It's not just that we are exploiting these people for our green energy uh, desires. We are at the same time, simultaneously, and uh, uh, v, Vijay Jayaraj of the CO2 Coalition uh, points this out in, in numerous articles. We're at the same time uh, denying them access to the fossil fuels that have made our development possible, right? We're saying World Bank won't give you loans for this. Uh, if you do this, we won't give you uh, food We won't when necessary if you develop coal. Now, China was was profiting on this tremendously, both geopolitically and economically, because through their Silk Road initiative says, hey, the World Bank and all these international agencies from uh, the U.S. and the U.N. won't give you money to build coal fire power plants. We'll do it. And they were building dozens. But now China has said, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. We're still building hundreds here, 
But we're not going to do that because we're committed to climate change. My suspicion is they're getting funding somehow because some are still going forward, probably from China. But the point is, we think we know best for them what their development should look like. And it shouldn't look like what made us happy and healthy and wealthy. It should look very different. And so it's not just that we are exploiting them for our energy needs today. We're denying them access to energy, to a livable life, to food. Uh, because we say that's, the, that's bad for them. That development is bad for them. And we know best. We're, we're Papa. We're still the Papa, you know, colonialist Papas. Uh, I can see uh, uh, Gates and Kerry and Biden in their white seersucker suits sitting on the uh, plantation porch, sipping their mint julep, telling these people, you can't have a coal-fired power plant. It's bad for you. All righty. So we've got, um, we've got about 15 minutes left in the program, and uh, I think we've covered most of the bases pretty well. We have a few questions that people have brought up that we have uh, saved for discussion now. Here's one from Michael Johansson. Did you see the report on the Finnish Geological Institute with calculation of how much metal we need for one generation of zero fossil fuel energy production? Sterling, I think you've probably got the, the point on this. Well, actually, I, I, I haven't seen their reports, so I don't know what they say. I, I have seen reports that say the green energy revolution just Biden's goals would require, uh, some, I forget whether it was $23 trillion or $123 trillion, but it was an enormous sum, but I haven't seen this report, so I can't. Um, I've, I've seen briefly, I haven't seen, I have not read the whole report, but I have spotted a couple of uh, stories about it. And basically the end result is it's, it's just not possible. We just, the, in order to get the entire just first world, onto entirely zero fossil fuel energy is um, not, I mean, it's just not going to happen physically. It's yeah, it's physically not possible. I, I said that a long time ago. Um, and, and the labor force required to uh, to build manufacturing here, refining here. If, if you really wanted to do everything Biden said that we're going to do and string all the wires and build all the turbines and erect them all, there's not a labor force in the U S which I think is in part why Democrats like open borders, because we're going to need all those laborers to string all those wires and refine all those minerals that we don't want our kids who they have to go to college well, uh, to do. Well, and I'm, I'm a proponent of just for the, the cool factor alone and for the idea of um, exploration and everything. I liked when a couple of years ago, there were quite a few companies that were talking about starting to do some off earth. <coughs> um, of course, how do you get there? You're, you are not going to do off-earth mining without fossil fuels, period. It's just, it's not going to happen. Not just, you know, obviously if you're traveling around in space, you can use all sorts of um, different propulsion that doesn't necessarily require fossil fuels, but getting off the ground does. <laughs> and in a lot of your... Um, support systems are going to be depending on solar, but that's an entirely different animal in space than on, on earth. So, um, that'll, that'll be a toughie for there, but yeah, no, we basically cannot without significant, um, external resources go all, um, electric or all no fossil fuel. Even some, even some utilities here in the U S and some of the, uh, the, uh, 
agencies that manage utilities here in the U.S., federal and state, they're 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 now putting out reports quietly. They're releasing them quietly. It's not getting a lot of headlines, but they're releasing them quietly, saying, if we do this green energy transition, it will make the electric grid less reliable. We'll have more blackouts. We'll have more uh, brownouts. People at critical times will lose power. Industries will have to shut down because we're going to have to divert power. That's what they're saying. And they're the ones that know a little bit about this. Okay. So we have more questions coming up from our viewers. Uh, let's put up the next one. Uh, we basically have uh, questions. Let's see here. Well, Gary Has Greta said, said anything about the millions of tons of natural gas that were released from Nord Stream 2 in the sabotaged <laughs> crickets? I'm not aware. Yeah, I'm not aware of anything. But Gary had a question. That was, he saw a report recently um, that renewables recently exceeded coal production. Um, well, that's, you know, that's what the report said. It said, it said that uh, not production, but, but energy, electricity from coal, that in the U.S. Uh, it had exceeded that um, as, a percentage, true. as a percentage. I don't know if it's true. I haven't done an analysis of the report. Uh, certainly, if you're talking capacity, it's almost certainly true now. Uh, you know, uh, there's more there's more renewable, there's more wind capacity in Texas now than there is coal. That doesn't mean that it supplies more electricity to the grid than coal does. Uh, two different things. So I'm not sure what that report was talking about. I haven't had time to, to look at it. But if it's talking capacity, it might well be true. I think capacity in, of coal is down to 20 or 14 <coughs> percent. Um, but actual if you're talking about overall energy supply, certainly not, because remember, we're not just talking about electricity. We're talking about fuel for vehicles, for transport. And that ain't electric yet, folks. Um, if you're talking. But but my suspicion is it's not even true for the delivered electricity. Um, it, but it said it, it said it surpassed nuclear. It surpassed hydroelectric, uh, which is a renewable. So I, I'm a little uh, I wonder. You know how it's like, well, OK, that's a renewable. Why don't you include that? Because if you included that, it would make the case even better. Well, they they've decided that they hate hydro now <laughs> because yeah. California keeps taking down their dams and uh, all sorts of fun stuff. So they don't <laughs> hydro is out. We're not doing hydro anymore. <laughs> yep. So can you discuss the well mixed theory in terms of water vapor and CO2? influencing global temperatures yet neither is well mixed generally and seasonally <clears throat> well um there's maps that have been produced of carbon dioxide and water vapor in the atmosphere and they're lumpy you know i don't have one quickly at hand that i can show you but i can tell you that i've seen these maps one of them is from the oco the orbiting carbon observatory and it showed where carbon dioxide is strongest and where it's lowest and you, you look at that and you think, well, geez, where is the well mixed in this whole thing? And, and the bottom line is, is that there isn't, it isn't well mixed throughout the entire planet. There are hot spots and there are cold spots for carbon dioxide and water vapor. Interestingly enough, on the orbiting carbon observatory uh, maps that have been produced, and they haven't been making a lot of them lately because I think they're embarrassed to publish them. They show hotspots, not in cities, not in the United States. I mean, there's some, but not the major hotspots. They're in weird places, like the Amazon and the Sahara. 
I mean, it's just, uh, you, you wonder what's going on, you know? Um, you know, so it's obviously not as, not as well mixed as they think. And I, while thinking about his question and, and listen to you, Anthony, a question was raised with me and I don't know anyone who's ever asked this. So the, uh, the location of the station where we measure, where we officially measure carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is the Mauna Loa observatory in Hawaii. Is it just me that thinks maybe the best place to measure CO2 is not near a uh, volcanically active, um, <laughs> you know, it's not a place surrounded by volcanoes where they're constantly emitting sulfur dioxide and carbon dioxide and other uh, emissions almost continually. Uh, the flows for some of these volcanoes flow slowly, almost continually, even when there's not a major eruption. It seems to me yeah. you find a more pristine location to measure uh, carbon dioxide someplace not we talk about the urban heat island effect for temperature stations well i'm wondering about the carbon dioxide uh uh bias due to volcanic activity ne nearby now let me address that now I, I realize this is a common you know argument it's a common like what are they thinking you know putting this thing on the side of a mountain that's got a volcano that's active okay and I, i've looked at this time and time and time again and i have a good friend uh, Forrest Mims, who writes about um, and does experiments at Mauna Loa. He's a, an amateur scientist, well-respected by NASA and NOAA. In fact, NOAA commissioned him to go to the Mauna Loa Observatory and write a book about it. And he's a very data-driven guy, probably the most data-driven, down-to-earth, no-nonsense kind of a guy you'd want doing studies. And he doesn't have a problem with it. And the reason he doesn't have a problem with it is because NOAA has a strict protocol based on wind direction. When the wind direction is a certain way such that it could blow carbon dioxide into the sensors, they don't make any measurements. And in fact, they are shut down right now because of a recent lava flow. They've been shut down for weeks. And so there's other monitoring locations such as the Scripps Observatory and so forth in San Diego. Bottom line is, um, I trust the data coming out of Mauna Loa based on the procedures that I've seen. However, it is not completely representative of the Earth as we've learned from the Orbiting Carbon Observatory. Now remember, this program was started back in 1958 before we had satellites that could measure carbon dioxide. So its relevance in today's debate may be dwindling. The point is, is that it's literally the best record we've got of carbon dioxide. However, um, there are other ways, like with the orbiting carbon observatory, that we can measure this. The idea was is that because it's high in the atmosphere, up about 14,000 feet, we're not subject to the vagaries of winds and weather that are at lower levels, kind of like what Dr. Roy Spencer and Dr. John Christie do with their UAH satellite temperature measurement, which is at an elevation of 26,000 feet. Basically, down at the surface, everything is noisy, weather emissions, the whole deal. But further up, it's more well-mixed and quieter. So that's the rationale for that. Okay. Well, I appreciate you answering that question. I didn't know. Yeah. I, and I, and you, you said that some people have talked about it. I've just never seen it talked about before. But um, I'm wondering, so still, 14,000 feet is pretty high up there. But are we, we've got other places uh, that aren't volcanoes that we could set this up at. You know, I suspect uh, there's a large part of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge 
Well, we can set yeah. up, and we have computers now. We have Wi-Fi. We have all sorts of things we didn't have back then, uh, where we could get these readings. Um, uh, okay, but anyway, well, the, you answered my question. I appreciate that. Yeah, the, the, I will say that yes, there are other locations where it could be measured, but whether it can be measured is another question. The biggest problem you have with things like scientific measurements is being able to reproduce them on a daily basis, like they do. The problem that they've got at places like up at the you know mountains, you know, up in the the wildlife range and so forth, they get nasty, nasty weather at the top of these things. The advantage of Mauna Loa is that it generally has pleasant weather year round. Occasionally they'll get a snowstorm, but it isn't debilitating. I mean, up in uh, you, you pick a pick a mountain in the United States, like in Alaska, for example, and say, well, we're going to put a, an observing lab up there. Well. Send a couple of people up there, and the next thing you know, they're stranded for six months, and they run out of supplies and all that other stuff, and they can't take measurements because they'll freeze to death if they go outside. All this other problem. No, no, I, I wasn't thinking about mountains. The Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, most of it's flat plains. Oh. And, and you wouldn't have to have somebody on site. My point is, you, you have the automatic readings sent up. Now, storms are a problem, but you just said Mono has been shut down for two weeks, so right. it's not giving us anything. Uh <laughs> Um, because of volcanoes. So every, every site is going to have its problems, I suspect. Yeah. But, uh, Mauna Loa may have been the best site to do it now when it was, uh, I'm wondering if it still remains that, but I don't know. And, and, and you've, you've answered the question anyway. Okay. So let's move on to some of the next questions we have. Can you tell the story of government intervention to save the moose from wolves in Yellowstone? I know nothing about that one. I know a lot about that. Okay, uh, it's up for you. A, there was a great there's a great book called uh, Playing God in Yellowstone by Austin Chase that details this. Yeah. And and he also wrote another book called In a Dark Wood that details some of this. So so uh they wanted to create a national park. There's no sanction in the constitution for such a thing as a national park. Uh but they wanted to create it and there were huge debates at the time Yellowstone was created as opposed to uh well, if this is so valuable, shouldn't we put it on the market? And then they say, well, it's valueless. Well, if it's valueless, if it has no value, then why are we going to lock it up? Because who's going to use it anyway? And so <laughs> they had these huge debates. And then uh, they were building the rails at this time. And the rails said, oh, we can we can profit from this. We can ship people out there on the rails. It'll give us traffic. And so they created the National Park. And then they said, well, we want people. People want to see moose and they want to see elk. And they want to see this charismatic megafauna mega that are predated upon, not just by wolves, but also by bears. Uh, and so they, they started fiercely, uh, you know, paying people to kill wolves. Um, but so people could come out and expect to experience elk and moose and be amazed at, at Yellowstone's wonder. And... Um, they were effective. They uh, the, the bear population dropped dramatically. Wolves were extirpated. Uh, we had to when we wanted to put wolves back in, we had to go to Canada to get a different subspecies. Uh, the Rocky Mountain wolf no longer existed there. Um, and uh, the predictable result, if, if you knew anything about ecology, was, well, suddenly all those big herbivores, uh, they started uh, browsing farther and farther up trees, wiping out new growth. Uh, you had uh, a lot of dead and dying trees built up because it was no longer managed by fire as the Native Americans had done historically for the good of the buffalo. Uh, beaver disappeared. Um, 
because they didn't have the young trees. And you had these huge wildfires back in, I was, I was there around then. So it must have been 90, 96, 95, 96 or 97, some, somewhere around, or the earlier 90s even. I think it was when I was there the first time. You had these huge wildfires that burned more than 2 million acres in, in around Yellowstone, largely because government knew best and knew how to manage wildlife. And uh, they wiped out the wolves and the, largely wiped out the bears. Now they put them back in. Uh, they still, you know, they didn't, they could have allowed hunting. They didn't do that because it's a national park. And uh, so they put wolves in, uh, back in and they've uh, protected the bears. And uh, the wildlife is, is largely fallen dramatically. Unfortunately, not just in Yellowstone, but um, uh, around Yellowstone, which is affecting hunting around there uh, because wolves are great predators. And um, well, and the ranchers aren't too happy about it. Yeah, the ranchers aren't happy about it. Uh, the hunters aren't happy about it. But uh, large ungulate populations have declined dramatically, and the trees are coming back, and the beaver are back. And so, you know, look, the idea that somebody in Washington knows best how to manage an entire ecosystem it was idiotic to start with. Uh, it started on the progressive era under with Roosevelt's friends like Gifford Pinchot, and it continues to this date. We just keep fiddling. Okay, so we have our final question up here. There's a paper that showed that through Fourier transforming wavelets of temperature proxies, that the sun is the main signal. Wouldn't that be the death knell for this whole thing? Well, you'd think so. Um, my friend Willis Etchenbach, who writes regularly on whatsupwithat.com, has looked for the solar signal again and again and again, and then a few times again after that. And, you know, I used to be a firm believer that it was the sun. The sun was driving everything. Well, it's true. The sun is the main driver of energy here on the planet, whether it's, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis or whether it's stored energy from fossil fuels from millennia ago. But the bottom line is, is that when you analyze sunspots and other things, there just doesn't seem to be a pattern. Some people think they find patterns. Uh, we've had some very prominent scientists go out there and say, look, I found a pattern. And then Willie soon... Look, Willie soon believes there's a huge pattern, and he's produced graphics that show the correlation to solar activity is much better than the correlation to CO2. Well, that's that's true in some cases. Um, the bottom line is, is that the sun is remarkably stable and has been for quite some time. We get small variations, but I will say this. A better candidate for change in temperature has to do with clouds. Dr. Roy Spencer pointed this out, that we just need a couple of percentage points in the change of cloud cover in the United States to see the kind of changes that we've had uh, associated with warming. And so for me, I don't think solar is the main driver. It's one of them, but it's not the key to the whole thing. Anyway. That wraps it up for this episode of Climate Change Roundtable. We thank you for your questions and for participating. I uh, thank our panelists, Linnea and Sterling. Be sure to subscribe to our channel and hit that like button and let us know how we're doing. For Linnea and for Sterling, I wish you a good Friday. And Well, it's not good Friday yet. A good day. <laughs> It'll be good Friday sometime good soon next week. Friday. Yeah, I don't know why I keep saying that. Anyway, good, good whatever day it is. <laughs> It's and a pretty good Friday. Yeah, good thank Friday. you. Yeah, yeah, Keep yeah. watching and thanks for participating. Bye-bye. How dare you?